we pray um, today and honor you for your grace that you give through the word of God, um, the ability to hear from you and to be impacted by you. Lord, as I always pray, I don't pray this out of form or fashion, Lord, but I really pray it because it's really a cry of the heart, Lord God. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh Lord God, my strength and my redeemer in whom I trust, God. God, I come to you before your people with great trembling, knowing that um, I get to espouse on the mind of God, which is a weighty task every time I get up here. So God, I don't take it for granted. Um, so I pray that you would bless your people to be able to experience and to be developed based on the scriptures, not my way of thinking and my way of doing things, but yours, God. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Well, we've entered, um, we, we're, we're almost done with First Peter. Um, so we've yet, God has graced us to go through yet another book. And um, we're excited about God's grace in that. Um, and so ne our next series is going to be coming um, ASAP, and we're going to be talking about stewardship. Ain't going to just be about loot, though. It's going to be about comprehensive stewardship, family, everything. So it's going to be about everything in our lives. So I can't wait um, to get to that. But when we went through First Peter, it was a great book to go through because as we were thinking through and as we are thinking through, um, what God was saying to us based on what he was saying to his people in the first century, about 60 AD, 66 AD, between that period, when Peter wrote this. And one of the things that we see with um, this book is that it has an inanimate amount of focus on how Christians react to different situations that they go through. Chapter 1, um, 1 through about 11 points us to the reality of uh, our salvation being sealed and without the ability for it to be removed, and the fact that even though our salvation cannot be removed and our faith has been accepted, God continues to develop our faith. But not only that, based on our faith, we saw in the rest of the chapter that God wants his people to be holy because he's holy. Then in the next section, in chapter 2, he talked about our position and our identity based on Jesus Christ's blood consecrating us for holiness. So we looked at the royal priesthood. What it looked like to be royal and priest at the same time. Then in chapter, the end of chapter 2, he begins in about the middle, about verse 14, to begin to show different places where Christian lives break down in light of what people go through. So he talked about our relationship to civic authority. Then he puts Christ in there and begins to talk about Jesus right after he talks about slaves. He talks about Jesus as the ultimate example of that. Then he talks about marriage. He talks about the husband's role, the woman's role, the wife's role. Then it goes down and begins to talk about the benefits of these things. Then he gives us a recap in chapter 4 and emphasizes what it looks like to suffer for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. And then last week we talked about shepherding and the role of elders, bishops, overseers as one cohesive unit, not different hierarchical authorities, and how they are to relate to the flock. We talked about how they're not supposed to fleece the flock, 
to go for theirs and get everything they can get for the flock and just give them little tidbits and spiritual donuts to keep them coming back to themselves. We talked about uh, pastors not being spiritual punks who are out for themselves, not out for Jesus, not out for his way of thinking, not out for his way of doing things. And so after what's fitting, after he addresses the elders, the bishops, the overseers, the presbytery, whatever our ecclesiological word is that we use based on the scriptures for leadership, he exhorts them. But then he, he does something interesting. He ends the book, and he ends the book talking to the younger generation. I, I was kind of blown away by that that Peter would end the book talking about young people's response as torch carriers of the Christian faith. Today we're in an environment and we're in a society where there's a silent revival going on. We're not talking about where people, somebody comes in for five days and preaches and everybody comes and leaves and they're not changed. Not that type of revival. I'm not talking about somebody sit a tent out on Broad Street or in Fairmont Park and they preach for a few days and then dip and it was crickets. Not that type of revival. But a revival where God is uniquely by his power, his own initiation, and his spirit reintroducing the gospel to a gospel-less generation. And he's taking his time with doing that. And so we're seeing massive amounts of church planting movements and, and parachurch ministries and a lot of people coming up in the faith, experiencing great joy, youth ministries. People are just rediscovering youth ministry, all types of interesting things that we're going through in a time period right now. But, but what I love about this passage today is that Peter takes his time to zoom in on this particular group of people because he wants to make sure that there's a solid biblical Christian legacy that goes on among God's people. And so today, just for a little while, as we talk, I want to talk about younger Christians. That's the title today, just, just younger, younger Christians. I think this is a fitting way for him to end We'll start in verse 5 as we talk about younger Christians. He says in verse 5, Peter states, he says, Likewise, you who are younger. Some of your translations may say younger men. But I'll explain why. Be subject to elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, the, uh, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your cares, all your cares or anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be, uh, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around or about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
by Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written uh, briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Beautiful. So, uh, to the younger Christians, uh, but I, want, I don't want you, if you don't feel like you're younger, you know, to peer out of this. I want you to dive into this today. But as we talk about younger Christians and, and Peter's warning to them and trying to develop them and get them to where he wants them to be, where Christ wants them to be, first thing we see is that young disciples must be committed to the local church. Real simple. Young disciples must be committed to the local church. It's interesting that after he exhorts the elders of their role, that he begins to exhort the congregation of their role in response to solid eldership. Now, he's believing that there's going to be solid ecclesiological church leadership that they're going to be under, and he's calling them to be submissive to this leadership. He says, you who are younger, I like that, stop there, yeah, you who are younger, that's in the masculine, so many attempt to say you younger men, but it's really younger Christians, Christians who are new to the faith, um, not only those who are new to the faith, but those who are young in age and are still novices in their spiritual development. Peter wants to make sure that he zooms in on young adults and youth for a particular reason. Now, you got to understand, they didn't have adolescence in first century Christianity. It was childhood and adulthood. We got this little incubation period called adolescence by which we let people continue to walk in childhood, not allowing, and then wondering why when they become adults by age, they're still struggling. But, but in the Bible, he says, when I was a child, I did childish things, but when I became a what? A man. So he didn't say, well, you know, when I was in my adolescent stage, ain't no uh, uh, Erickson stage of development in the Bible. So make sure you submit Erickson's stages of develop, childhood development to the Bible. Amen, somebody. And so, and, so, and, so, and so when we look at this idea and we dive into this, we see that he is very concerned about young people. When you look at the pastoral epistles, God is extremely uh, careful and concerned about young Christians. That's why it says, don't let anyone look down on your youthfulness. And most people stop there because they said, don't look down on me and don't front on me. Just because I'm young, I can be better than you, weightier than you. And then he says, but read the rest of it. But in your conduct. And all of those different adjectives and adverbs can be laid out and point to descriptions of Christian maturity. So even in youthfulness, even in being young in age, God can mature you beyond your years. He's concerned about God always likes it. When he can utilize people who are expected to be a particular way to blow people's minds at what it looks like when Jesus Christ gets to them and they're blown away, not by them by themselves, but they're blown away because of Jesus' impact on their lives. And so Peter dives in and he says, you who are younger, 
Of course, we said those younger could be those who are of age, spiritually, and also physical age. Also, young cats that want to serve in eldership. It's probably some people there that, that, that are sizing up the elders, young heads, who are saying, basically, you know, I could take um, um, Elder Jones. I could take him. You know what I'm saying? And so Peter says, I want you to chill out and stop tripping, thinking you could preach, thinking you could teach. Better than the older elders that were there. And these were elders probably, at this time, older in age, not younger elders. And so they're, they're basically trying to pull back the younger generation to be able to be developed and learn. These youthful Christians were also prob probably rushing the church during this time to do things on their own timeline. So in other words, when, you, when, when young people, when younger people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior, it's, they, they, they come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and begin to get in the Bible. I could remember when I finished all my work in corporate, when I was working corporate uh, a, a, a long time ago, and I, and, and I would finish all my work and my boss would let me read the scriptures and I would get, and I would read chunks of scriptures. And I'm talking about four and five hours worth of scripture. When I got home, I was reading the scriptures. I, was, I mean, gobbling up the scriptures. And then what I would do is I would go to the local church and I would take all of the information that I had been learning through those scriptures and expect the local church to be all of that right now. It's the tendency of youthfulness is to rush, to want everything today. See, just because technology allows you to have the world at your fingertips doesn't mean the Christian life works that way. The Christian life is process-oriented. Say process-oriented. Yet God is determined to make you wait. I remember one great preacher said, if you ask for patience, just know the application for God giving you patience is for him to make you wait. But the issue is, all of us, based on the fruit of the Spirit, have patience. We just got to learn how to apply and utilize that patience. And so in youthfulness, we want everything today, especially with us being a young church plant. We're very young church plant. And because God has done some amazing things, we expect everything today. We expect us to have a full-fledged youth ministry today. Many of us want us to have uh, a build nine buildings today, even though we may not possibly do that, hopefully not waste money on brick and mortar. We want to send 900 missionaries full-time on the field today. We want 20 full-time staff today. We want our website a certain place today. We want small groups to be a certain place today. We want everything today. And God's, God's process does not work like that. You want your life to be a certain way today. You want to be married today. You want to be buying a house today. You want to be finished school, amen, today. You want a job today. You want everything that God has for you without the process of development to get to where he wants you to be. But the Christian life is determined by a sovereign God to not let you get away with not having a process. And so that's why you see the older Christians sit back with their hand over their upper lip when the young people are bum-rushing and rushing. They just sit back and they just giggle. And that's why an old head come in the room and the young people being there talking and just talking all their theology and running them out. Yeah, 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 yeah. They say, what you think? And then an old head just kind of sit back Look up in the sky for a little while. Just look around. And then say a statement. And it floor everybody in the room. <laughs> Just because it's that 
herb and spices, the 11 herbs and spices of the kingdom, that stuck to the ribs of their soul from walking with Jesus over a certain amount of time. And most of the time when they answer, they don't solve the problem. They just shut us down and make us zoom in and focus on something larger. And so we, in our youthfulness, we must utilize that youthful vigor. We must focus that youthful vigor. But we must be careful that we don't begin to, 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 to begin to want everything that God has right now because you'll begin to get frustrated for nothing. And so our prayer is, is that because God does everything in process, we must adjust ourselves to be process-oriented in our lives. And so he says those who are younger. So let's talk about the blessings of youthfulness. Some of the blessings of youthfulness is it brings vibrancy to a church. It brings innovation. It brings stamina, sometimes. Brings openness to new things. Challenges the status quo. Keeps the older from complacency. And movements begin with them. Movements begin with them. But these are some of the challenges of youthfulness. Brings burnout to a ministry. Lack of focus. Shifting interest all the time. In nine ministries. Amen, somebody. Lack of patience. Lack of focus. Lack of long-term vision. Lack of stability and lack of experience. And so we see that there are both blessings and challenges to youthfulness in the local church. So that's why Peter begins to say, you who are younger, he wants to get our attention. But then he, he goes on and he qualifies what he wants the younger to understand to help them to be developed. And he goes to the next piece and he says, you who are younger, see, like what you, be subject to the elders. Be subject. This word for subject to the elders means voluntary submission. To voluntary, bring yourself under the authority of another to voluntarily bring yourself under the authority of another. And, and, and so what happens is, is because we're in a time period where people don't like authority. Everything that says, a, that reeks or sniffs or smells like authority is a great frustration for many because it means it's going to slow your A-game down. And so what God wants us to do and what God wants them to do is he wants them to be ecclesiologically connected, connected to the local church and allow themselves to be placed under the development and tutelage of the elders. And in light of, because in light of a lack of submission to that, it creates renegade Christianity. Renegade Christianity. Without ecclesiological church connection, it automatically creates, it creates renegade Christianity. Today, there's a lot of a renegade Christianity. I got an email from a cat. And I was, I was very concerned about some of his views because he had, you know, issues with us. And he's from another spot and was beginning to talk about the fact that y'all got elders and y'all talk about church discipline and y'all talk about church structure and development. But, but let, me, let me talk about, and, and y'all use the Bible too much. And so he said, he says, here are a few things I want to say to y'all. And I'm going to read some of what he said. He answers a question. This is interesting. He says, if the old councils did not organize and publish the writings of the Holy Bible, that is Paul, James, Peter, and so on, who would, would Christianity exist today? What state would 
his body of believers be in. He says, I have a few points on this, uh, E. He says, my answer is yes, Christianity didn't start with the Bible, nor does it stop. Christianity didn't start with Paul's letters, so it doesn't stop. Christianity started with G uh, when Jesus told some little Jewish fisher boys on the shore to follow him. Old Testament fam. He said, I feel uh, due to man's cleverness, a process of substituting the Holy Spirit has taken place century after century. Now listen to what he says. He says, allow me to explain. He says, I've been told and have read the biblical canon, the councils, uh, the publishing of the Bible, and all that has done to protect legitimate writings of the apostles, and he sounds very intelligent, excellently intelligent, and to officially uh, de-recognize the writings of heretics. Everyone wasn't sitting around sipping lemonade, holding hands one day, and decided to canonize the letters. It was all out of crazy stuff happening, wolves deceiving. So he's doing good so far. The creation of the Bible was prompted by deviation. Interesting. He says, so it is safe to say that for that time, the Bible was a band-aid for heresy. While I, of course, take no issue with, publish, with publishing and the early saints' letters, I do take issue with the body of Christ's reaction to it. Interesting. He says, we do not rely on hearing from the Lord as Paul did. It's like everyone went chill mode after his books were published. I reject the seminary teaching that divine inspiration ended when the first century saints died. Out of our convenience and comfort, we created a system of going to publish book for answers, talking about the Bible as that published book. Yes, you will find the answer. Yes, it is the word of God. But what about listening to what uh, God has to say to you? What about Paul in jail? And then he goes on and begins talking about the fact that he says, yo, what happened to us just listening to the Holy Spirit for ourselves? Why do we even have a Bible anymore? We don't need the Bible. The only reason the Bible was given was to correct wrongs. He says, but today, our generation needs to learn how to just hear from God without utilizing the Bible. And so you begin to see how youthfulness, and they got a whole website, and they got a movement in this certain city on the East Coast where there are racks of youngins just hanging out together. They're doing a lot of uh, evangelism, and they're talking theology without a Bible. Everyone's telling one another what feels good in their spirit, and they're affirming one another through that, and they're bringing others in with that reality. And so when we talk about the dangers of, the, uh, of, uh, of, 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 of not being connected and under authority, matter of fact, they put on blast having elders. They said the only reason elders and leaders were developed in the church, the only reason they were developed was to just you know what I'm saying? That was just for their time to correct heresy. After the heresy was corrected, it was time for believers to do everything on their own. And so we see an obstacle. One of the obstacles to renegade Christianity is structure. It's structure. Because many organized systems of ministry have become institutionalized. When we say institutionalized, it begins to not flesh out the Christian life organically and practically, it begins to make a program and a ministry area for everything that God has called his people to do. And so some cats are reacting to institutionalized, not religion, but institutionalized Christianity. Obstacle number two, of course, is authority because of bad experiences with Gentile lordship and leadership, which I think is, is, is actually a, 
a decent understanding of that reaction. Also missing out on the grace of God, the grace that God wants to give because authority is a means of grace, which we'll talk about in a minute. So this is what a lack of structure and a lack of authority leads to. What it leads to, no structure, no authority, leads to being misled. Number one, the questioning and reevaluating the historic Christian faith. That means that we can rewrite everything that has been written. Number two, number two, maturity that goes as far as your peers. Number three, getting the same results as the ones you ran from. See, whenever you're imbalanced and you try to go to the other extreme, you get the same results because it's not centered on Jesus. It's centered on the other extreme being the standard for which you're trying to run away from. And whenever you go to opposite extreme, it gets the same results. The Bible becomes less authoritative and your feelings becomes the governing voice. Next, lack of structure actually becomes structure. <laughs> Somebody gonna get that on the way home. But a lack of structure actually becomes structure. A lack of authority makes you the authority. And so it's very important that we, in, in, as God is raising up youthful generations, um, youthful uh, uh, Christians around the world, that, that we need to be careful that we are biblically connected uh, to the historic Christian faith. But then, he, but then he goes from just the authority within the church, and he goes to accountability. He says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Clothe yourselves. Because you can see them, everybody wanting to be first. Everybody wanting to be looked at and, 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 you know, being able to floss mutually in the community of God. And so he's saying everybody's vying for position. Everybody's trying to be better than the other one. Everybody's trying to be seen based on an ungodly youthfulness. And he said, I want you to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. These are one of the one another's. Say the one another's. The one another's are the ways in which men and women in the body of Christ mature together and have mutual discipleship. The one another's are the ways in which we get mutual discipleship. In other words, you don't necessarily have to have a one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship with someone to say you're getting disciple. But when you get into the clustered community of God's people, stay with me because all of this is going somewhere. When you get in the clustered community of God's people, that mutual accountability is the dominating force that helps us to mutually disciple one another. That comes through all of the one another's. But, but, but it's interesting that here he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And that, that, word, that, that word clothe here is, is, is a real interesting word. The word it means, the, the root of the word means to, it was the apron of the slave and it was tied around over his tunic to keep it from being soiled, to keep it from getting dirty. In other words, when he says, clothe yourselves with humility, he says, I want you to put on biblical humility. What is humility? Humility is seeing yourself rightly based on how God sees you. Seeing yourself rightly based on how God sees you. When you add to that and subtract from it, it automatically enters into pride. So therefore, you must see yourself based on how God sees you. And he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And so I can see Peter remembering back in John 13 when the Lord Jesus Christ, when the Lord Jesus Christ 
took off his normal outer garment and wore something of a garment that looked in, in relation to his posture and position in the house. The lowest person on the totem pole was supposed to wash feet. But in order to understand washing feet, you got to understand the first century. Because, I mean, they, had, they didn't have toenail clippers like we had. They had to sand them down with rocks or something. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and so, I mean, I don't know if your foot ever got dirty real bad and it just got black under the toenail. Just a long line of black. Then I don't know if you've walked all day. Or you walk people. I remember when I was in the South, it used to trip me out that people would just walk around barefooted. And then when I'd see the bottom of their foot, it was the color of the speaker. <laughs> Feet so hard, it's just, you can knock on it like this, right? And so the dirt would just marinate into the crevices of the crunchiness of their foot. Then it would be pebble rocks between their toes, and then they got the nerve to sit on the curb and take a piece of paper and fold it up and go and go all between the feet to get the that trifling, right? Well, when Jesus, in their day, they were practically barefooted almost, walking around. And so people would take off their shoes at the door. And so when Jesus came in the door, the lowest person on the totem pole was supposed to wash feet. But Jesus goes and he puts, wraps a towel around himself and he takes himself and he postures himself as a servant to the people that are supposed to be under his authority. And one of the things that Jesus says, when he does it, he wipes the toe jam. For Peter was like, you know, don't wash my feet, Jesus. And, and, Peter was, and Jesus was like, well, if I don't wash your feet, you know what I'm saying, um, then you don't have a problem. And Peter was like, oh, cool. Well, you know, and he started, you know, Peter, Jesus was like, whoa, whoa, fall back, family. Don't, don't take off everything. Just all I needed to wash the feet and everything else would be clean, all right? So he washes the feet. After Jesus washes their feet, he says something beautiful. He says, I want you to continue to practically do this for one another. I want you to become a servant of one another. And so Peter, having that in mind as he's teaching God's people and teaching this younger generation, in a, in a beautiful way, he's, he's, he's helping us to understand what it looks like to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another and begin to serve one another rather than coming to get served. Because we are consumer generation, what we do is we go to a ministry, we go to a church, and we go and we survey the options that are available for us. So we go and we check out the worship. We check out the preaching. If you got kids, you check out the children's ministry. You check out what they're doing, and based on your gifts and your personal talents, do they have a way for you to plug in personally? And the only way you'll connect to that community of believers is if you like the worship, if you like the Word of God, if you like the children's ministry, and if you like the way you're quickly exalted in that particular ministry. And what happens is we have conditioned ourselves to only stay at a church based on what the church can do for us rather than seeing biblically our role to throw our head in the pot so that everybody don't get burnt out. Because one of the reasons why we have to slow down is because all of our, we have about 300 people that have gone through Covenant Community and only 100 of them or less are serving. serving. So we got to cut back. So when stuff starts cutting back, it's, it's like, you know what I'm saying, like everybody wants to benefit but the issue is, the challenges is, there's some stuff we're not just going to be able to do. And I am not going to burn out the populace of people that God has given that are at everything all the time doing the same things. And they're getting burnt out. And, it, and it's just like, Pastor, I can't do anymore. 
And so this has to be a mutual effort. We got to get our game up because if everybody served one place and did it something in one place, the, 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 the spread out of the responsibility would be beautiful. It's just like a bulletproof vest. When you look at the material of the bulletproof vest by itself, it's a rippable material, actually. But what the bulletproof vest, what they, the way they build the bulletproof vest is they overlay the stitches and then they, then they lay different layers of those same curtains of stitches on top of one another. So that when a bullet comes and hits the bulletproof vest, it pulls together and it pushes the bullets back out or stops the bullet in its tracks because all of the stitches that are in that area do its job in keeping the bullet out. The reason why the church goes through so many challenges and so many frustrations is because all of the people are not banded together, locking arms to help get the, 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 the work of the enemy out of ministries. And so what we've got to begin to do is we've got to begin to say, God, what's my lot? What's my lot to throw in? Am I just going to come and I'm going to just, because some of y'all, and I'm just saying this, some of y'all have been to mad spots and have sat back. I just need to hear from God. I need a word from on high. I need fresh manna. I need to smell the crust of the manna from the outside. So I need sourdough rye manna. You know what I'm saying? I need wheat manna. And, that, and that's fine to hear the word of God. But there's going to have to come to a point where you provide some manna. <clears throat> and so everybody, this is going to be a hard place to be if you think you can chill. Because we're going to keep getting at you about it. We're going to keep, because it's our responsibility, not to beat anybody up and not to discount anybody's pains. But we, who got iPhones, computers, MySpace, Facebook, Black Planet, White Planet, Hispanic Planet, we got all this stuff, Asian Planet, Samoan Planet, South Pacific, all these planets, we got all of this way of connecting. We got all these ways of connecting, and, and what happened is, is we're used to everything syncing up for us. Now we got to sync up our lives for others. So we got to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another. So you got to, so if you're going to be a walk as a banging younger Christian, you got to be under ecclesiological authority, and you got to be in solid Christian relationships with someone. Where someone can tell you about yourself. Not just how cute you are. Girl, that's a cute hairdo. I like that. That blouse is... See, we like those type of relationships. But we don't like the type of relationship where someone tells us... you. you you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you know you're wilding right now, right? You need to have somebody. You don't always need to go to counseling for everything. See, what happens is, <laughs> is some people, if we would just, if we would have maintenance Christianity, we would need emergency help all the time. Because, because see, if you, like, you can have a good hoopty. I don't know if you ever had a good hoopty. If you take care of a good hoopty that can take you from A to B, look, you can't take a hoopty on the highway. Don't try to go to, don't try to, go to North Carolina in a hoopty. Don't go, try to go to Florida in a hoopty. You're not going to make it. It wasn't built for that. But if you change the oil on the hoopty, you get a tune-up, you wash it. Amen. Put some seat covers on it. Put some steering wheel covers on it. Y'all know what I'm talking about. 
You know what I'm saying? Change the tires. Put the nickel in it or the penny in it. Make it sure the tires are right. And, and if you do that, the, 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 the car will last longer. But the issue is you can have a brand spanking new car and don't change the oil, don't get a tune-up, don't get none of that done, and that car won't last you three months. Why? Because you didn't use maintenance work and what was, should have been normal maintenance turned into an overhaul and an emergency and cost dollars out the wazoo. And all I'm saying is the Christian life is the same way. You need to utilize, and I'm going to talk about this, all of God's means of grace. You need to be in the lives of others and them in the lives of you. I'm not just talking about this ingrown community that we talk about here. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about because you, you ain't going to be able to have relationships with everybody. It's just about a few people. They can, they can help you with your toe jam. Tell you you need your toenails cut spiritually. Amen. That you need to wash your underarms spiritually. That you need to blow your nose spiritually. And that you need to wipe, wash the spiritual dandruff out of your hair spiritually. That you need to get the spiritual boogers out of your eyes. You need that. And so he says, I want you to close and submit to it. Because know why he says submit to it? Because every time somebody tells us something, well, I, I can say a few things about you. And it's like, yo, you can't receive nothing unless you got to hit them back. But you got to learn to shut up sometimes in Jesus' name and calm your angry jets down. Because, you know, as soon as somebody tells us just the boy, if, we, if it was a thermometer on our shoulder, it would pop. Because we don't like anybody to tell us anything. But he says humility, proper humility is the willingness to hear people even when, if they're wrong about you. But if you didn't hear it, then you won't be able to grow from it. So he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Then he goes and he quotes Proverbs 34.4. He quotes Proverbs 34.4 and he, and he quotes Jesus. He says in verse, in the latter part of verse 5, he says, For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Beautiful here. The word for oppose means to battle against. In other words, this is the picture of God being opposed to the proud. When you, in, in, in the context, it's talking about submitting to leadership and submitting to other solid Christians, right? Whenever God sees us not submitting to leadership, and I'm not talking about Gentile lordship, because y'all heard me last week, so don't take it like that, okay? And then um, submitting yourself to sol other solid Christians. When you don't do that, it, the picture is, as God said, oh, you're not going oh, to submit? You're not going to get in no relationships? God, God puts his arms out like this, and um, they put on his battle regalia in heaven. And he sets himself up to fight against you and for stuff to not work and for life to break down, for you to hit rock bottom so that you can hear from his leadership structure and his people structure. And God loves us so much that he will battle against you. You're not his enemy. He loves you. It's discipline. But he's going to beat the snot out of you. <laughs> he, he's going to tear you up. It was just like, it was just like for me. Whenever my, I was doing something and I had no business and I looked up and my father said, what? I knew that if I didn't adjust in between that little period of time of the what and the grabbing of the belt, there was going to... Like, it was like, 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 it was like, I mean, it's just a react, what? And they, they kind of, you know, parents just go, 
You know, I found myself doing that with Maggie. What you, what? And you know, and then going for the bell. And then, no, daddy, no. You need to say, no, daddy, no. I can change, no, God, no, God the Father, no. But some of y'all don't know it's him that's after you, and you've been called on the rebuking the devil. God tells one group, who can rebuke me if I'm after him? And so a lack, a lack of humility leads God to come after you because he's determined not to see you look the same. And then he said he's opposed, he opposes the proud, but then he gives grace to the humble. This is beautiful. Submission to God's church, leadership structure, and God's people, we're still in the context, we're in the text, fam. God uses that submission as a means of grace. Let me explain that. Because sometimes a means of grace, people think of grace as, okay, God is just gracious and he just lavishes grace. Let me explain somewhat of a misnomer of that. He does do that. By grace are you saved through faith, not that of works, it is a gift of God that no man should boast. That's salvation. Now, sanctification is by grace. However, God has mechanisms that he set up that are non-meritorious. Let me explain what meritorious means. In other words, meritorious means you earn it by doing something. But what God has done is God has booby-trapped Christianity with, with mechanisms to release grace that he has available. Let me see if I can explain it. When you go to an ice machine, you ain't going to the ice machine to create the ice. The ice is already created. But what you do is you go get a cup and you just push it under the mechanism and the mechanism releases the ice. Now, you can't get mad because you hear ice getting made in the machine and it's all falling down in the machine and you can hear the ice. Like, I want some ice. And they're going to be like, well, if you want some ice, you got to push the mechanism to receive the ice. That's the same way the grace of God is. In the Bible, there are means of grace that God utilizes to release the grace that he always, that he makes available. What makes it non-meritorious is the fact that the grace has already been created and available. If the, but, but if our work of pushing the mechanism caused God to create the ice or the grace and bring it to us. That means that it was based on us and not him, but the grace is already available. He says, if you're not submitting to leaders, if you're not submitting to solid Christian relationships, you're not, there's some grace that God is not going to give you. There's some grace that's going to remain off limits to God's people. Just like it says in Ephesians 4 verse 29, it talks about giving grace, giving grace to people based on the words of the moment. In, in 1 Peter chapter 4, it talks about employing our gifts to serve one another in order that we may experience the varied grace of God. So that means that Christians have to learn the secret of pushing the proper mechanisms of releasing God's graces. So then he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. This idea of the mighty hand of God, God's hand, is an expression that the Bible used to show the statement how God is interacting with his people. There are several faces of the hand of God. God's hand can be opposed to you. 1 Samuel 5, 11, against you. You don't want God's hand to be against you. 
God's, the good hand of God, which you'll see in Ezra chapter 8, 18, and verse 22, and verse 31, where God, where God releases or causes grace to, based on his hand to impact our lives. And then he says, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. So every exaltation process of God always boils down to the gospel, humiliation, exaltation. Humiliation, exaltation. All of the Christian life points to that. If you don't experience humiliation, there is no spiritual exaltation. You can want it all you want, but until God sees you seeing him properly by your relationship to his leaders and your relationship with his people, listen, God is not going to bring the due exaltation that you want. You can come here and say you got nine million gifts, but if you don't submit it under that humble umbrella of God's means of grace, it's not going to happen for you, fam. I remember, I remember just, just all of the places that God has graced me um, to just be. And I could just remember, I mean, just by the grace of God and helpful men in my life to help me walk through um, really just being content where God had placed me. Not complacent, but content. That's a very hard, uh, that's, that's a very hard place to be, especially for younger Christians. Contentment versus complacency. See, contentment is the willingness to be satisfied with God no matter what your situation is like. Complacency says, I like it where I am, and I refuse to go beyond where I am. You can be content and be in the same place physically, but God grow you spiritually, and you're moving even though you're mobile. Somebody going to catch that later. And so, and, so, and so what God wants us to do is he wants us to be content, not complacent, not lazy. But content. You know, I can remember at, 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 at First Baptist Church in Highland Park in Landover, Maryland, where I trusted Christ, got baptized, started volunteering, and started teaching later. Became a youth worker, became a youth pastor at Oakland Bible Fellowship, ordination, Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church, assistant pastor. They didn't, wanna, didn't even want to go through those roles. CBS teaching at a Bible college. And I'm not saying this to lay out my resume, but just talking about God's process. Then went back. OCBF staff, and then became supervisor. First Baptist Church, I mean, uh, uh, Fellowship Bible Church, became a resident, and then ended up planting Epiphany, helping plant Epiphany Fellowship. So it was a process. That was, that process was a 15-year period. 15 years. 15 years. God, many times, no matter how much you want it, no matter how much you put out your spiritual mixtapes, Everybody got a spiritual mixtape that they hustling. Everybody. But if God says no to that time, it's not going to happen. You can get the best marketing. You can get somebody to work on your MySpace page for you. I'm telling you right now, it won't happen. Because that's why it says in the text, it says, so that at the proper time. What's beautiful about God is God has a proper time for everything in our lives. Proper time. So it says, last but not least, I didn't even get another point. I'm not even going to worry about it now. Last point. <laughs> I believe it's the last point. Yep, last point. Almost last point. Young disciples must know the consequences of being um, renegades. Look at what he says here. He says, casting your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. 
talking about anxieties because God is not doing everything in your timing. So you get frustrated, you get hurt, you get angry, you become bitter because God isn't doing it in your timing. That's anxiety that comes from that. So he says, cast your care upon God. That means tell God how frustrated you are. Tell him how frustrated and out of whack you are. Then he goes and he says, be sober-minded. That means clear-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Know, know who the devil likes? The devil likes people who don't like authority and don't like relationships. He loves them. He loves them. He loves them. He wants you, oh, act a fool. Don't submit to nothing. Oh, don't listen to her. She's a fool anyway. She's a nitwit. Cuss her out. C cuss him out. Yes! Yes! You and get off by yourself. Off on your own. Go to the mall by yourself. Go to the movies by yourself. Go shopping by yourself. Just do life by yourself. Get, get, go, go, off, go off away from everybody. Chill out by yourself. <laughs> Sick them. God loves people. I'm not, talking about you, I'm not talking about just the need for a long time. I'm talking about you live life because you think it's done best with you alone. The devil is like, I remember I like watching Latin National Geographic. I love them Jones. And man, I like it when they buy the, buy the dirty water. I don't see how they drinking that dirty water. But all them buy the dirty water. And you know the antelopes be over there, Jones. You know the antelopes. And them bulls, they be down there drinking. And everybody listens to the birds. The birds is like the alarm system for the jungle. If wings start flapping, that means everybody run. So, 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 so it was one time where, where, where alligator was trying to get a cat, and, and the alligator came out, and everybody went like this. And then the alligator moved, they went back. Then when they went back, one was off by himself just drinking his water. And all of a sudden... The lions were in the bush. The, the, you know, they got the woman lion first. They so, they so smooth. The female lions, they smoothing them up. And what they do is they all line up in a, in a line like this. I love watching that stuff. And they line up, and then, and, then the, and then the lead female takes off, and then all of them shift. And then they, they start the first, she starts the first leg to move whoever it is to get them scared. And then the other ones surround them like this and just run like this. And so everybody else runs. Now, they ain't coming in the mist of a joint with them, them bulls, them bulls, like it'd be like a hundred of them. Now, the female line know not to go into the community of the bulls. You go in there, you're going to get legs removed and gored. But what they do is they pick out the one that refuses to cluster with the community of the bulls. And when they do that, the lead line jumps on. Then after the lead line jumps on, the shoulder and bites under the neck. Two of them try to get the neck at the same time and then and, and cut off the breath of the animal. And not only that, others jump on the back to wear them down. While they're cutting off the breath, they want them to lose their breath so they can bring them down and devour them. That's what the devil wants to do to you. The devil, the enemy of God, wants to see you by yourself. And listen, sometimes when you're depressed, and you don't want to be around God's people, that's pride. Because you set yourself up in a position to be picked up. Some of y'all are sitting here and you've been picked off right now. 
You've been picked off by the enemy, and you experience, we experience people get picked off when you're on the fringes. And we're not talking about no cultic, goofy, relational community where everybody just hangs out all the time. But there's a, some type of defensive mechanism when God's people biblically cluster together and being properly led by, by godly leadership and God, other godly Christians that the enemy said, I can't get in right now. I got to find another opening. But the issue is, is if we don't even have the cluster and there are too many openings because everybody isn't clustering together, then not only would just one of us get picked off, all of us will. And so, and so, and so the prayer of Peter and the belief, I believe Peter wants for them is he wants God's people to experience what it looks like, especially the younger ones, when they cluster together and not think properly that they need to be on their own. He says, resist them. Resist them. He didn't say, devil, I take notice of you in the name of Jesus, and I rebuke you right now, devil. Devil, you're a liar. He didn't say all that. See, when you're talking all that, all that, you're going to get picked off because that ain't resisting. Resisting in this context looks like, let me get with some people. Devil, I see you. You under that curtain right there. That ain't... Rebuking the air. Just rebuke, that's rebuking the devil. Like, what are you talking about? Ah, and just get you. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know what I'm saying? It says, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, the one who brings all the means of grace, who has called you to his eternal glory will himself do three things, will do three things. He will restore. He will restore. That means, the word restore there means God will put stuff in order for you. Some stuff that's been out of order will get in order when you get under his order. <laughs> if you ain't under God's order, then it, but, but what's, what's interesting is God makes it his divine responsibility to confirm. He, he, he makes it his responsibility to release all of his grace, and es, not just eschatologically in the future, but right now, to restore, to confirm, to strengthen, and to establish. Restore means to put in order. Confirm means to stabilize. Strengthen means to make more able, and establish means to provide with a firm foundation. That means that he will take youngsters and he will give them a stability that's unlike these cats over in 2 Timothy 3. This is what unredeemed youth and young adult culture looks like. So, but understand this, that in the last days, there, uh, there, will be, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, uh, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. That's what unredeemed youth and young adult culture looks like. It looks like total licentiousness and rebellion. But biblical and redeemed youth culture looks like saying, God, 
I need to hold back some things and submit under your means of grace and get biblically and godly connected. In other words, God in this passage back over to 1 Peter does something beautiful. He makes it his responsibility. He makes it his responsibility to trademark his people. And he wants us to be trademarked by restoration. He wants your life restored. He wants your life confirmed. He wants your life strengthened. And he wants your life established. But on his terms and what it looks like from his perspective. In other words, when you look at God, God copyrights our lives. God says all rights reserved. I have all the rights to you and I want to mark your lives and these are the trademarks of solid young adult Christians. And our prayer is, our prayer is, is that while God gives us this time and gives us the grace to be rocked by his glory and rocked by his grace, that, that, that we would become solid, that we would be solid, that we would be in the midst of solidness. And that also that we would be for others what no one was for us. That means some of the things that you're wanting God to do for you, he may never do. Because he may prepare you to do it. But the issue is, he's opposed to you if you're proud. But he'll give massive amounts of grace to you if you're humble. And so I pray that as we as younger Christians, those of us who are younger Christians, um, we, we, we want to see clusters of solid communities of Christians that begin to permeate one another's lives and permeate the world in practical ways, not just ethereal theological concepts, but us beginning to say, yo, Lord, I, I want you to do it through me, and I want to put my hand to the plow to see this done. And so as we end this book of First Peter, talking about young disciples and situations that are way beyond this spiritual maturity. I pray that God would give us the grace to show off maturity that's beyond our years. Lord, Lord, we thank you that you are such a paradoxical God that everything that you do, you do upside down, backwards, topsy-turvy. And so I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that our lives would be mar marked by great humility seeing ourselves in light of you. Pride is usually an overcompensation for our weaknesses. And so, God, I pray that we would not try to comp uh, uh, overcompensate, but, God, we would be honest with where we are and where we're not and allow you to develop us and pour into us so that we could be all that you want us to be. So, Father, as we... Um, leave this place but never leave your presence and to get ready, get our hearts and minds ready for communion. Will you um, bless our time here as we dive into communion and celebrate the Lord's death as central to what it looks like to be humiliated and to be exalted. Lord God, if, 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 if there's someone here that doesn't know Christ, doesn't know Christ the Savior, the first part of humiliation is admitting that you're a sinner. Humiliating ourselves, admitting that we can't merit the grace of God on our own. And the greatest act of humility is acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the only way, is the only way to be made right with God and to have a relationship with God. Not to just get stuff, but to get him by 
repenting of our sin and trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Lord God, will you do that through us? We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let our men come.